Well, good morning, everyone. Happy uh, 4th of July. Hope you and your family are having a really great uh, holiday weekend. Um, my sermon this morning is, is really not patriotic at all. Uh, we're going to continue our series called Living the Dream, uh, studying the life of this Old Testament character named Joseph. Uh, we'll be in Genesis chapter 42. If you have your Bible, you want to turn there and follow along. Genesis 42. While you're turning there, let me give my, my 4th of July quick spiel real quick. All right, going to do that? Um, you know, it's not very often that the 4th of July falls on a Sunday. Um, and, you know, you don't have to look very far to realize we live in quite the polarizing time, right? The, the climate is pretty polarizing. You can just turn on pretty much any news network and see that. And, you know, on the one hand, in certain circles, it seems almost PC to, you know, belittle our country or uh, talk about the problems and the sins and the issues and the, uh, you know, almost kind of trash America to really not show gratefulness or gratitude at all, which is not good. It's not healthy, right? On the other hand, um, there are some on, uh, you know, that, that take what, what I, would, I would say are healthy forms of patriotism, and those can quickly turn into really unhealthy forms of nationalism, right, where... Um, we almost take that too far to where we almost worship our country or we, we begin to think that like God loves us more or, or, or we're better than or, or whatever. And that's not, that's not good and that's not healthy either, right? And so I guess uh, what I would say is just your pastor is just being careful on, on, a, on a holiday like this, man. Let's, let's be grateful for, for where God's placed us, right? Let's be grateful for our country and let's be thankful for uh, our freedoms that we have because just doing what we're doing this morning is not okay in a lot of places around the world. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the men and women that have sacrificed a great deal to help us be free and those that continue to do so. At the same time, though, we, we don't want to drift so far to where we start to look down our noses at others or we start to think we're more loved or we're more blessed or we're better than. Because if you remember, God himself had some pretty harsh things to say, you know, even to his chosen people, Israel, right, when they began to think of others that way. And I've heard Christians even say stuff like, America's the new promised land, and America's the new Israel, and none of that's in the Bible, by the way, right? And so, I just, there's my 4th of July message for you, right? Let's be grateful for where God's placed us, and grateful for the, the, the freedoms that we have, and grateful for those that have sacrificed, but let's not, uh, let's not worship our country, right? Let's worship Jesus. Let's be about building the kingdom of God and making it a better place. And so, um, there, maybe I've equally offended both sides, which is always my goal, Right? It's always my goal. We are equal opportunity offenders here at the Vista. If you are looking to be offended, you've come to the right place. Um, as always, if you have angry emails, send those to Austin at thevista.tv. He's happy to reply to those things all the time. Anyway, uh, Genesis 42, this summer we're walking through this series called Living the Dream, and we're looking at the life of Joseph, this really unbelievable Old Testament character. And up to this point, man, you, we, his life has had some really crazy lows and some really crazy highs. And um, just kind of the, the quick recap is that Joseph was the favorite son of his father, Jacob. His brothers, he had older brothers that despised him because of it. They hated him. Joseph had dreams like, you're all going to bow down to me one day. You can see how older brothers don't like that, right? So ultimately, they, they, the hatred and animosity is so deep in the family that they want to kill, the older brothers want to kill Joseph. One of the brothers talks them out of it and says, let's not kill him. So they decide to sell him. They sell him into slavery. 
Joseph ends up in Egypt in the home of a man named Potiphar, and he ends up working for Potiphar and gaining the trust and respect of Potiphar. And it's not long before Joseph's put in charge of all of Potiphar's house, all of his business dealings, his whole household. Joseph becomes, uh, again, in, in second really to Potiphar in his whole household. Well, Potiphar's wife then begins to try to seduce Joseph. Joseph rejects her advances repeatedly until one day she claims that he assaulted her. Joseph is falsely accused and then he is thrown into prison for years for a crime he did not commit. He finds himself in prison and he ends up interpreting some dreams for some other prisoners, but they forget about him and he just stays in prison for a while. While he's in prison, Pharaoh has a dream. Nobody can tell Pharaoh what the dream means. And so he hears about this guy in prison named Joseph that can interpret dreams. And so he goes and gets Joseph. Joseph comes before Pharaoh and Joseph then interprets Pharaoh's dream, which basically the dream is that there's going to be seven years of plenty. The land is going to produce. It's going to go really, really well for seven years. But then there's going to be seven years of an extreme famine, extreme famine. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, here's what you do. Here's how we live through this stockpile for seven years. Let's have a plan where we, 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 store, we store up everything and then we'll be ready for the seven years of famine. Well, this pleases Pharaoh. Pharaoh is quite impressed with Joseph and he ends up putting Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. Essentially, Joseph becomes second in command of all of Egypt. And so they have the seven years of plenty Joseph stores things up, puts all the grain in the cities. Now they're ready. Now it's the seven years of famine, and, and, and you can't find food anywhere, right? So in 42, chapter 42 of Genesis, this is where we'll pick up where Joseph's brothers now are going to come to Egypt in order to buy grain, all right? And so what I want to do um, this morning as we walk through the text, we'll, we'll walk through much of chapter 42, what you're going to find is that um, Joseph is going to sort of test his brothers. There's going to be a series of, of different tests throughout the chapter. And what I want to do and make this applicable for us is each of these tests, I think uh, there's an opportunity there for you and I to ask some questions about our own lives and about our own faith. You know, I think it's good to evaluate where we are and where we stand. It's good to evaluate our spiritual walk and our spiritual condition and so that's kind of what I want to do this morning. As we walk through the, the text and we look at the ways in which Joseph's brothers are tested, I think it's good for us as well to be tested and to maybe ask ourselves some questions. And so we'll walk through it together. Genesis 42, beginning in verse 1. It says that when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for, for us there that we, may not, that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Ah, so Jacob is doing the same thing with Benjamin that he was doing with Joseph, right? Benjamin was Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin was now the favored son of Jacob. Benjamin was the other son uh, by Rachel, who was Joseph's biological mom as well. Rachel actually died giving birth to Benjamin when Joseph was a young boy. And so Benjamin is now the, the favored son that the father is overly protecting, okay? Verse 5, thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. 
He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Uh Uh-oh, it seems like Joseph's dream is coming true, right? Remember the dream, chapter 37? The arrogant little dream Joseph has where he ticks off his older brothers? You're all going to bow down to me. Well, he's living the dream, right? I mean, it is, it is coming true. His brothers roll into Egypt and they bow down. Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? And he said, uh, he said they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Now, you can imagine why they wouldn't recognize him. Joseph was 17 years old when they sold him into slavery. They, they assume at this point he's probably dead. They certainly had no way to know he'd end up in Egypt. By now, Joseph, his form has changed. He, he's probably in full Egyptian garb as a leader. I mean, he's speaking, we're going to find out in a little bit, he's speaking through an interpreter, so he's not even speaking the same language. They just don't recognize Joseph at all, but Joseph recognizes them. Verse 9 says, and Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And he said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Whether there is truth in you, Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph's brothers roll into Egypt looking for food, and there's Joseph. Now, they don't know that it's Joseph, but Joseph knows that it's them. It's interesting, you know, when Joseph recognizes them, he could have responded in a number of different ways. I mean, he had the authority to have them arrested on the spot and probably even killed He had authority to do that. No one probably would have even questioned Joseph if he chose to act in in that way. He also could have just revealed himself to them. Woohoo, it's Joseph, right? Like he could have just, you know, said, oh, look at that. Dreams coming true, right? He could have responded and just um, told them who he was and just maybe seen how they responded or where things go from there. But what Joseph decides to do instead is to test his brothers, Joseph's trying to discern whether his brothers have changed at all in the last 20 years, right? He's trying to discern whether there's been any transformation in their life whatsoever in 20 years. You know, last time he saw them, they were hard-hearted, calloused. I mean, they sold him. He was crying in a hole somewhere, screaming as, as he's being led away. He's trying to say, wait, have these guys changed? Have there been, has there been any transformation in their life in the last 20 years. And so Joseph's got some questions, right? He's got some questions. And, and the first one of those has to do with, with Benjamin. Where's Benjamin? I mean, have, have you done to Benjamin what you did to me? Have you treated him the way you treated me? I noticed Benjamin's not here. So he's probably got some questions about, about Benjamin, about maybe about his father. 
Is dad still alive? What's going on back home? He's, he's asking all these, all these questions to see again if there's been any change. Has there been any transformation in their lives in the last 20 years? He accuses them repeatedly of being spies. Why? Probably to see how they're going to respond under pressure. Are they going to be at one another and argue? And uh, are they, are, are they going to you know, defend one another? What's, what's their response going to be when they are pressed a little bit? You know, we'll see what really comes out. Joseph's trying to discern if they've changed, if there's been any transformation. So here's my first question for us as we walk through this. My first question for us is this. Has there been any transformation in your life? Has there been any transformation in your life? You know, from the time that you met Jesus and Jesus begins to make a difference in your heart, what has that transformation looked like? Are you a different person today than you were before Christ? The Bible's going to talk about the fact that transformation is the goal. Like the goal is not information, right? The goal is not let's just learn as much as we can and maybe memorize more verses than other people. The goal is not just information. The goal is transformation. The goal is not behavior modification, right? Behavior modification is where you learn how to act the right way around right groups of people, right? So you learn to play the church game and and kind of play the part. But the question is, is there any real transformation that's taken place in your life? It's good to evaluate that. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Brothers is, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to believers in the church, right? By the mercies of God that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God, right? And the goal is that we encounter Jesus, but that when we encounter Jesus, we not stay the same. That, that over time, we begin to be transformed by the Holy Spirit of God who is living in our hearts. And so that's the, really the first test, right? The first question is, has there been any transformation in your life. Again, not just information, not just behavior modification where we learn how to act the right way and sort of play the church game, but has there been any real transformation take place in our hearts and in our lives? It's really good to sit back and evaluate that. How am I different? Because I know Jesus, right? How am I different? The first test from from Joseph is he's trying to discern, has there been any change? Has there been any transformation? Are these guys the same? We read a little bit further, verse 18, back in Genesis 42. It says, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are are in custody, and let the rest of you go carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified that you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. Now they're going to talk about Joseph and what they had done to Joseph years ago. We are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered and said, did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? But you didn't listen. So now there comes this reckoning for his blood. 
They didn't know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he, that's Joseph, turned away from them and he wept. And he returned to them and he spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. So now, originally it seemed like Joseph was going to send, keep them all and send one of them away to bring back Benjamin. Now it seems that he said, okay, I'm going to send all of you back, but I'm going to keep one. I'm going to keep one here. So here's kind of the second test, if you will. Joseph wants to know if they care about their family enough to return for him, right? Do they, do they love their brother enough to actually come back and get him? Or, or are they going to be content just to leave him in Egypt, right? Joseph's wanting to see, do they, do they love their family? Do they love their brother? And, and here's the thing, uh, looking ahead, what you're going to find is they don't return immediately, right? They, they basically wait until all the provisions and all of the grain that they go back with is gone before they then circle back and go, yeah, we should probably go back to Egypt, right? Essentially, I'm, uh, they fail the test, really, but this is the, the second thing. Joseph's trying to discern, do they love their brother? Do they love their family? Will they return for him? Here's the next question for us. As we evaluate our spiritual life and our spiritual condition, a good indicator, right? Do you love God's family? Do you love God's? How are we doing at loving the family of God, at loving the church? Over in John chapter 13, Jesus is talking here in verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So according to Jesus, loving his family, loving one another is an indication of whether or not we belong to him. Do you see that? How we love one another is an indication of where our heart is. How we love one another is an indication of whether or not we are indeed disciples of Christ. This is why it's always weird to me when I hear people say stuff like, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I can't stand the church. I hate the church. The church has wronged me. The church has done this. There's a bunch of hypocrites at the church. I'm like, well, you know, yeah, join the club, right? Like, you can't say I love Jesus and then not love the things Jesus loves. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is God's plan and God's instrument to to change the world, to build his kingdom. And so people that would say, well, I love the Lord, but I just, I don't love the church. Jesus is going to say, no, 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 your love for one another in the church, in the family, is an indication of whether or not you actually belong to Jesus or not. So that's a good indication of where, where is our heart? Like, do we love the church, the family? Here's the thing. Like, we know this to be true. It is, it is easy to love people that are a lot like you because they sort of affirm you, right? I, it's easy to hang out with people that see the world through the same lens as I do, that, that like the things I like, dislike the things I dislike think the way I do, vote the way I do. Like, it's easy to love people like that. It's, it's much harder to love people that are very, very different than you, that see the world through different lenses, that don't agree with you on everything. That's, it's harder. In fact, you might even say that you don't really learn to love until there's some conflict and you have to work through the conflict, right? Anybody been married more than five minutes knows that, right? <laughs> right? Like, I always joke and say like, the people that think they're going to be experts at marriage are usually like dating or engaged couples, <laughs> right? Because when you, when you don't really know someone, 
They are easy to love. It's easy to appear to be in love when you don't really know them that well. But then you do life with them and you get to know them and you realize, uh uh-oh, they have faults and flaws and issues. And you also realize more fully that you have faults and flaws and issues that they bring out. And so you learn to love in the context of doing life together. And this is what's beautiful about the church, right? It's a diverse beautiful family where we're all different. In fact, Revelation talks about that one day in heaven, there's going to be every nation, tribe, and tongue. We're not all going to be alike. We're not all going to be just alike. We're not all going to think the exact same things. That's what, that's what the family of God is all about. It's about being different, learning to love one another in spite of our differences. So again, I ask the question, do you love the family of God? Because according to Jesus, it's an indication of whether or not we actually belong to him. Joseph is trying to discern whether or not his brothers love their other brother enough to come back for him. Do they care about their family? It's kind of the second test. Well, the third test. Here we go, verse 25. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provision for the journey, and this was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of a sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? So the third test really is Joseph wants to see if they will do the right thing and return the money. So basically, they gave Joseph money for the provisions, for the grain. Joseph told his leaders, hey, I want you to secretly put it back in their sack. Let's see how they respond. So they they stop along the journey at some point to feed the donkeys, and they look and go, "Uh uh-oh, the money's here. He's going to think we stole the money. Joseph's testing them to see, you know, are they really honest men? They, they, They told him a while ago they're honest men. Let's see if they're really honest men. It's a question of their character, their integrity. Are they going to do the right thing even when they're gone and they're out of the presence of me? Are they going to do the right thing? And what you, again, what you're going to find, you know what they don't do? They don't turn around and take the money back. They don't turn around and take the money back. They continue on home. In a minute, you're going to see when they get there, they all begin to unpack their stuff and they realize that all of their money is there. And it scares them even more. Incidentally, I love this fact, the fact that at the end of verse 28, it says, what is this that God has done to us? Is this not classic, right? Like, is this not what we do? Like, they sin. Their sin has consequences to it. Their sin haunts them. It doesn't just go away for 20 years. It's kind of like right there in, the, in, in their minds. And now their sin has led to the situation in which they're in, and yet they stop and go, God, why are you doing this to us, right? It's just classic, man. Our sin has consequences, and how many times do we just kind of blame God for our situation? So basically, Joseph in this third test is trying to see if they'll do what is right, even when they're not in his presence. Do they have character? Do they have integrity? Good question for us to ask ourselves as we evaluate our faith, right? Do you pursue righteousness no matter who's watching. And do you pursue righteousness? Do we pursue righteousness? Do we do what is right? Are we people who walk in righteousness? Because that's who God calls us to be. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. 
Jesus is preaching, teaching here in this large block of teaching called the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the most popular verses in all of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And then all these things will be added unto you. Jesus is talking in context here about not worrying about your life and about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat and not worrying about the, all this stuff that we spend so much time and, and get so anxious about. Instead, he says, listen, what you need to be about is the kingdom of God and righteousness. And so it's a good question for us to ask ourselves, right? Do we, do you pursue righteousness no matter who's watching? We find once again in the text that Joseph's brothers, they just, they just fail the test. They fail the test. They don't, they don't return the money. They don't return the money. We'll skip the next section, but basically what happens is they go home and they tell their father Jacob about what happened in Egypt. They, they say, hey, we, we, we ran into this guy and he was kind of harsh with us, right? And he told us if we don't bring Benjamin back, we don't get Simeon back. And so dad, we got to take Benjamin. We got to take Benjamin with us if we're going to go get Simeon back. Skip down to verse 38. But he said, that's Jacob. He said, my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to shale. What we learn is that not much has changed in the family dynamic in 20 years, right? The brothers still aren't really honest men. The dad is still showing crazy favoritism towards one son. Can you, I mean, how sad. Look at verse 38 again. For you to be one of the other brothers listening to your father say, but he, Benjamin, is the only one left, right? I mean, think about being one of the other brothers, like, uh, hello, I'm right here, right? I mean, how hard and how horrible that would be, right? What we see is that not much has changed. The family is still crazy dysfunctional. Dad's showing favoritism. He's, he's essentially saying, Simeon can die in jail. You can't take Benjamin. You're not taking Benjamin. Man, we get to the end of 42, and it's just, it's just pretty messed up. It's pretty messed up. Now, the good news is, is we're going to continue the story in weeks to come, and we see that eventually some things get better, and there's some repentance, and it's, it's going to get better. But right now, man, it's, it's pretty messed up. There's, there's basically not been any growth in Joseph's family in over 20 years. They're the same. The dynamic is the same. So here's the final question. The final question is, has there been any growth in, in you? Has there been any growth in us? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Are you growing in Christ-likeness? Theologically, this is called sanctification, right? Sanctification is this lifelong process, right, where we, we meet Jesus and we, we make Jesus Lord and Savior of our lives, but the process of becoming more like Jesus is, it, it takes a little while, right? It takes a little, a little while. And so it's called sanctification. It's, it's, again, this process where we are conformed into the image of Jesus. We become more and more like Christ the longer we walk with Christ. 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, and he says this in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 3, the beginning part says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification 
sanctification. A lot of people ask me all the time about, what's the will of God for my life? And here's the thing. As a pastor, I really can't tell you some details and some specifics, right? Like I, I can't tell you, you know, what job you're supposed to take, what God's will is for who you're supposed to marry, or there's a lot of stuff about, you know, your future. I don't know. But I can tell you one thing about the will of God. What is God's will for your life? It's your sanctification. God wants you to be more and more like Jesus. God wants you to grow in holiness. God wants you to be conformed into the image of Christ. That's what God's will for your life is to start with. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, verse 23, Paul is ending this letter and he says it this way, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May God sanctify you. That's what God's will for you is. God's will for all of us. It's to become more and more like Jesus. And the thing is, listen, it's easy to look at this text and sort of stand in a condemnation of Joseph's brothers, right? You can read this and go, I can't believe they haven't changed in 20 years. In 20 years, there's been no growth, no movement, no nothing. How sad. And then let's be honest, though. Sometimes we look at our own lives, and my question would be the same. In the last 5, 10, 20 years, man, are we, are we growing closer to Jesus? Are we being conformed into the image of Christ? Has there been any growth, any movement, any passion in our lives, in our hearts in the last 5, 10, 20 years? Or are we just the same? Are we content with areas of sin in our life that it makes no difference anymore? Are we passionately in any way pursuing Jesus? You can look at some real tangible things, right? Some tangible things. Am I more loving today than I used to be towards others? Am I more gracious towards people or am I more harsh? Am I more forgiving than I used to be? Am I more hospitable today than I used to be? Am I more generous today than I used to be? And all of these things, growing in these areas, man, that's what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Are we growing in Christ's likeness? It's really good to evaluate our lives. And so again, while it's easy to stand in condemnation of Joseph's brothers, the questions remain for us. Has there been transformation in our life? How are we doing at loving God's family? Do we pursue righteousness no matter who's watching? Are we growing in Christ-likeness the longer we walk with Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, I pray that, God, you would just help us to evaluate our own lives. God, in light of so many in Scripture, um, God, there's good examples and bad examples. And I, I just pray, Father, that we would not fall into some of those same traps. I pray, Father, that, that we would not just be content to settle for who we are today, but, God, we would just have this desire in us to grow and, and be more and more like Christ. God, we're not perfect. Everyone in this place would readily acknowledge the fact that we're all sinners and we make a lot of mistakes, but... But God, I pray that we would not get to places where we are just comfortable with our sin. But Father, you would continue to do the work, the hard work, the uncomfortable work often of sanctifying us and helping us to be more and more like Jesus. So Lord, we just ask that you would do that, that you would do that work in our lives that we cannot do by ourselves. We pray for strength courage. I pray we wouldn't look back in 20 years and see that we have not changed one bit. But we pray that you would, you would change us. You would transform us. You would sanctify us. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.